Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. We are in a series called Awkward Conversations, as the title slide shows. And uh, if you have Bibles, you can open to 1 Corinthians 7. That's where we are going to uh, look at a conversation today. As you're opening, let me go ahead and extend my thanks to Pastor David uh, for uh, inviting me to come preach today. And just to also express from me and Natalie, uh, happy birthday, David and Rachel. We're really uh, celebrating you here today. I think they're in their mid-20s. Is that right? It's some, somewhere around there. So happy birthday for that. 1 Corinthians 7 is where we are, and let me just set it up like this. Um, We're talking today about singleness in marriage, and we live and exist in a culture and and all cultures that really has a lot of confusion about um, how we talk about singleness in marriage. There's a lot of myths floating uh, around there about uh, singleness in marriage, and um, uh, it can be awkward. And now let me be clear, it's not the people who are awkward, it's that we get awkward as we talk about it. Because there are just these tensions that we all observe and then we misinterpret and then we just don't know how to proceed. And so I want us to just look at clarity from Scripture today on that uh, for singleness and for marriage. Now let me also just offer this caveat. If you're here today and you're married, um, stay with me. Okay, because likely you have some single friends or family members or neighbors or coworkers. And at some point, because you're a believer in Christ, you might be asked to weigh in on this. And so I want you to benefit from Paul's wise teaching here in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, If you're single here today, never married, widowed, divorced, uh, man, I I really think Paul has an encouraging message for us uh, here today uh, in God's word. And I think it's encouraging for us because again, in our culture, it can be awkward to kind of process through this. And let me just illustrate with a couple of just tidbits here. Uh, Number one, I just want you to consider the holiday situation, right? Uh, In in our country, we have these federally recognized holidays. We just experienced Mother's Day. In a few weeks, we'll experience Father's Day. We have Valentine's Day, okay? And the idea behind these holidays, the thing you get is that there are certain value that we place on being a mother and a father and being in a romantic relationship but we don't have a holiday for single people, Or consider this, restaurants. The minimum table you will find in a restaurant, the minimum number of chairs around one single table is often two, okay? You might have three, you might have four, you might have five. You might have a whole, you know, banquet table of eight or 20 or whatever, but you never go into a restaurant where there's a table for one, right? Just try it. I mean, just imagine this. You go to a restaurant, you show up the maitre d' and you say, how'd like a table for one? And just look at how they look at you. They're, they're kind of like, seriously? You're, are you joking with me? You're like, no, table for one. They go and they seat you and you get the menu and they put two down. You're like, no, I, ju- I just need one. And they're like, what? Right? It's never more nervous, you know, than when the wait staff shows up and says, okay. And they look and there's one person there and they're like, are you waiting for someone? And you're like, no, it's just me. And they're like, really? Right? We just, even in restaurants, we just can't imagine that there would be one person sitting at a table, right? And yet, and yet, consider these statistics. Number one, everyone is born single, okay? I have never heard of a doctor delivering a spouse, have you? 
We have a friend who's an OBGYN. We asked her. She's never delivered a spouse. There's never been a situation when you say, congratulations, it's a wife, right? The husband is on his way. You know how men are late, probably watching TV somewhere, right? Everyone is born single, all of us. We had that common experience. Also consider, half of couples will live as a single person again at some point. You get married, likely one of the spouse, spouses will pass away before the other, and that person will move into a phase called widowing, a widowhood, right? Okay. Number three, consider this. 60% of Orlando is single based on our most up-to-date data. 60% of the metro statistical area is single. And just to break that apart, 43% are single, never married. 3% are widows and widowers, and the rest are single again or divorced. 60%. Hey, listen, if we're going to reach our city with the gospel, guess what? We have to reach single people. We have to figure out a way to include single people into our community. And finally, maybe this is the most striking one. Jesus spent his entire life as a single man, and he thrived. Jesus the God of the universe, who we have invited into our lives to save us, lived his entire earthly life as a single man, and he had an abundant life. He thrived, thrived. I want you to imagine if Jesus lived in your neighborhood and you saw him walking his dog, walking around, you can imagine how all the neighbors would group up at the dog park or the mailbox or whatever, and they'd start talking, right? They'd go, oh, there's Jesus walking his dog. Yeah, he's, he's a nice man. Is, is he married? No, I think he's single, maybe in his 30s. And then there's that pregnant pause, and they go, hmm, I wonder what the story is there. Did he, did he not meet somebody in college? Was he serious at one point, but he broke up? I don't know. And then the two ladies, because it always seems to be two ladies in my experience, they're like, hmm, I have a niece who's about his age and she's single. <laughs> Maybe we could set him up because, you know, he must just, he must be lonely as a single man, you know, this must be the thing, right? We would try to set Jesus up with somebody because we cannot conceive in our culture that someone could be single and happy and yet. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, he presents us this vision of singlehood that is incredibly satisfied. This, this vision of being a single person like Jesus where you live an abundant life. Even in Paul's time, there was this confusion about singleness and marriage. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul wants to weigh in and bring us good news from God's word. And so if you have it, I want you to read together with me. We're going to read on the screen and every so often I'll make some observations. So let's read together. First Corinthians, we'll jump around a little bit. I'm going to address singlehood and widowhood and engagement here today. Uh, Pastor David's going to address those things, uh, marriage in, in coming weeks. So uh, starting verse six, Paul writes, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, uh, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, first theme I want us to notice here today in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 7 is this. It's Paul's assumption. Paul says the single life can be the good life. Guess what? Paul says the single life can be a good life. And that very idea there, I think, challenges what we uh, have learned in our common experience growing up in our time period right now. Uh, in our culture, I think probably we would say the single life doesn't necessarily become a good life. In fact, maybe the single life is a, a non-preferable life. If you've grown up in any part of our, our culture, in any part of the world, you've probably heard this. 
In fact, I think there's this myth floating around there, and maybe it goes something like this. Singleness is a problem, and it gets solved by getting married. Have you guys heard that before? Singleness is a problem, and it gets solved by getting married. And uh, it's in our culture, and it's even made our way into church life, right? Singleness is a problem, and it gets solved by being married. And so if you're a single adult who comes to church, and you come here today, and afterwards you go, hey, I want to come find a community afterwards, and they you know, take you over, maybe not here, but maybe you've been in churches that are like this, right? Someone comes to church, and they go to the singles class, and they walk in, or the, the group, and it's like you walk into the class, and immediately the teacher's like, hey, come up front, we want to introduce you, and you kind of walk in, you think this is weird, and the teacher's like, hey, you know, this is Eric, everybody say hi, everyone's like, hi, it's like, all right, who will bid $5 for this date with Eric right here, right? $5, thank you very much, can I see 10, oh, 10 over here, right? And all of a sudden, you're in a dating auction. You're like, wait, 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 I was just trying to find community. You're like, what's the deal there? Oftentimes in churches, we embrace this, right? That, that singleness is a problem and the solution for it is to get married. But Paul says this, I wish everybody was single as I am. Okay, it's a good thing to remain single. How can Paul say this? Well, here's the reason why. In Scripture, over and over again, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way that the Bible thinks about our marital states is almost secondary to the way that the Bible thinks about something much more important. The Bible never says singleness is a problem um, in any part of Scripture, in Old Testament, New Testament, that singleness is this problem that's solved by marriage. Uh, 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 overwhelmingly, the Bible tends to be uh, more concerned with something else. In fact, in Genesis 2.18, here's what uh, 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 the author of Genesis, uh, probably Moses, writes about this. In Genesis 2.18, it says, God is actually writing this. He, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, much later in uh, Psalm 68, in fact, I think it's on your screen here. Psalm 68, David says this. He says, sing to God. Sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides in the clouds, rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. And then verse six, he says this, God sets the lonely into families. Um, God sets the lonely into families. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the assumption that Paul has here is that the biggest problem you're gonna face existentially is not singleness, it's loneliness. And the problem of loneliness is solved by community, okay? In the Old Testament, God says, it's not good for man to be alone, so I'm gonna give him a, a helper suitable for him. He's gonna take Adam and he's gonna put him into community. David says, God's gonna give lonely family. Paul is assuming the problem here is, is not singleness, is loneliness, and the solution for loneliness is community. Let me see if I can uh, explain it here with just this chart here. Uh, I have up here this matrix, right? And on the horizontal axis here, you have single and married. And on the vertical axis, you have loneliness and community, right? So it gives you these four quadrants here. And so this represents four types of people you might meet in your life. And so if you're married and you're in community, Paul says this is good. It's good to be married in community. If you're single and in your community, like Paul and Jesus were, this is good too. This is what Paul's saying. But where does it become not good? It becomes not good when you're single and lonely. And likewise, watch this. It is not good if you are married and lonely. Okay? So think about people you know. 
In my experience, Natalie and I have been, my wife and I have been doing ministry for 20 years or so, and we've worked with a lot of single people. And we find, again, because there's this misconception out there that oftentimes people are here, they're single and they're lonely. And they assume that if I get married, I will immediately move up here into married and in community. And so they go on the app or they do the thing or they go speed dating or whatever and they get married. And sometimes marriage actually propels them into community. But more often than not, these people who are lonely and single, they get married and now they're married and lonely. So they go from single and lonely to married and lonely. And then what happens? Four or five years go by, they're still lonely. They don't have friends. They try to spend all time together. Now they're isolated in this home in marriage and they get divorced. And then what happens? They get divorced and they go back to being single and lonely. Only now they go, marriage isn't for me, right? You got friends this way. You got family members who've been this way. Paul is saying this. The goal if you're single and lonely is not necessarily to get married. It's to get into community. And it is a good thing if you are a single person, if you are in community. Getting married, thinking through all those other things, that's a whole other conversation. But the primary problem Paul's trying to address is loneliness. And the solution for loneliness is community, no matter whether you're married or whether you're single, right? But if you're single and if you're in community, it's a good thing. I want you to keep reading with me here. Paul picks up much later in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the betrothed or engaged people, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, what Paul's saying here is, I don't have a command to you. I'm not not bringing down something from a burning bush on high, but I'm giving you my judgment. Um, I, as a a person who's lived and and ministering as an apostle, I've just seen these things to be true. And I want to I want to give these ideas, these truths to you right now. So he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. He continues. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Okay, so what's going on here, right? He's saying, um, hey, if you're single, I wanna recommend that you stay single. If you're betrothed, if you're engaged, I wanna recommend that uh, maybe you really consider what happens next, right? Okay, what's he having here? Paul now has the second theme he's talking about. And it's the, it's the word altering. He's saying, don't alter your status. Following Jesus does not require you to change your status. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that you now have to think completely differently about where you were. Paul's gonna say over and over again, remain as you are. You've come into Christian community, just try to remain as you are. Don't think now that you're a Christian, you have to get married. Or don't think that because you're engaged and you're now a Christian that you have to follow through on marriage. Uh, you, can, you can say as an engaged person, considering these new events that have happened, maybe I don't need uh, to move into this. But if you wanna move into it, that's great too. What's most important here in following Jesus is that you are in healthy community. What is of secondary importance here, what is of secondary importance is what your marital status is, okay? 
And I think Paul is saying this. He's just trying to bring this wisdom, this judgment uh, uh, to bear on this uh, for at least two reasons. Two reasons. Number one's practical. Uh, Number two is spiritual. So here's the practical. The practical is this. When you're a single adult, it is much more efficient for you to manage your time and your calendar and your resources. Do you guys know what I mean by that? When you're a single adult, and some of you maybe are single adults here and you're nodding, maybe it's been a while, but think back to when you were a single adult. It's so much more easy and efficient to manage your time and your resources uh, and and your money and all these things, okay? So just consider this. I remember when I was a single adult, you know, 20 years ago, before Natalie and I started dating, a, long, a little bit longer than that, uh, I was in college. I had roommates, but we didn't really, you know, like see each other. They didn't factor in. It was basically just me, right? So just think about this. If I want to go get something to eat as a single adult, here's my decision-making tree. You ready for it? I want to go to McDonald's. And then I go to McDonald's. That's it. That's the whole process. I can be incredibly efficient with my time. If it pops into my head and I have the money, I have the time, whatever, I go. That's how it works, okay? Once I started dating, I got married. That decision-making process was now a little bit more complicated. It's not bad. It's not worse. It's just more complicated. I have another person to consider. So as Natalie and I think about date nights, we go, okay, listen, I'd like to go on a date with you. We'll go get some food. Where would you like to eat? I don't care. Where would you like to eat? Oh, I don't care. Where would you like to eat? And it's the Wimbledon sisters at, uh, I mean, the, 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 the Williams sisters, uh, uh, Serena and Venus at Wimbledon, right? Just back and forth. Just back and forth all the time. Like, where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? And it's now been nine hours. We haven't made a decision. We're having to call an ambulance to come get us because we're famished, because we're trying to serve one another and just defer to the other one. Right? There's, it's a whole complicated process. And then you add kids into that mix and you have a family. It's a boardroom meeting now. Did you guys know this? Like, where do you want to go eat? Okay, 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 and my daughter's getting Robert's Rules of Order off the shelf, and she's making a motion, and my son is seconding, right? And as it comes from a committee, there's no further discussion, and we're having to think through this, and it's complicated. And Paul is saying, I wish that you would remain single as I am, because once you get married— Once you have a family, it doesn't get worse. You're not more immoral. You're also not a better, more moral person. It's just there are these things you have to consider. You have to weigh them. It's going to slow you down. You're going to be um, less efficient with your time and your resources. That's the practical concern. Here's the, the spiritual concern, the other thing. Spiritually, it just takes on a whole new thing. So consider this. Again, when I was a single man in college, uh, Christians, you know, we around here, we practice this thing called having daily devotionals or quiet times. You know, about once a day, you know, we would recommend for your own spiritual life just to um, either in the morning or in the evening, you, you sit down with the Lord and you open your Bible and you pray and you read scripture and you journal and you just consider what the Lord might be saying to you for that day so you can kind of just be in tune with God. And I'm telling you, when I was a single adult, I was a quiet time champion, right? Just, I had like a, a 365 day streak. Like every day, I was like, boom, I'm there. I mean, every time I wake up 5.30, six o'clock, I'm having my quiet time. Then I'm going for a run. I mean, every day I'm just learning. It's just, it's just great. It's amazing. I had it. I could count on it. I could schedule it. And I remember uh, Natalie and I got married and we came home and my alarm went off and I was gonna go have my quiet time. And I had this thought for the first time because now we're managing uh, uh, physically a bed together. And I'm like, do I get up? to go be with the Lord? 
is my alarm too loud? Did I wake her up? And then you try to get out of bed like a ninja, but you can't, it, it creaks at one point, And then you, when you step on the floor, it's like, you know, a Looney Tunes commercial, right? A cartoon, and you just, right? And you have to go to your spot and you're careful about turning on the light. Okay, maybe I do it in the dark with my phone light on so I don't wake anybody up. And then you add kids to the mix and the kids didn't sleep last night. And you wake up and it's time to have your quiet time and you walk through the house, but you drop a spoon on the floor when you're making coffee and now a kid is up and there's crying and people didn't get enough sleep and everyone's upset. And so it's been 10 days since you've had your last quiet time and you're beating yourself up and listen, what's going on here? Spiritually, when you get married, especially if you have kids, it just becomes more complicated. If the Lord, uh, if there was an opportunity to go on a mission trip to a really hard place to do missions and the Lord was calling me to it and I'm a single person, I just go. But if I have a family, I got to weigh those factors. I've got to consider the cost. I've got to think through what the plane flight's going to be and all these things. And Paul just says this, I would wish that most of you would remain single in community. If you want to get married, that's fine. We can pop the, the matrix back on the screen. Listen, he's assuming everybody's up here. I would, I would recommend everybody stays here. But if you want to get married, that's great. You can get married and stay in community. It's just going to be a little bit more cumbersome from a decision-making standpoint. So I would just say, hey, let's try to stay here. Okay, let's try to stay if we can. Don't alter your status. And definitely don't think because now you're following Jesus, you have to get married. And don't think that if you're engaged and you're following Jesus, you have to go through with this because God's asking you to. He might be calling you to step out of that engagement and all of that's okay. But if you're here and you're single or you're a widow or you're engaged and you have romantic passions that are really compelling you to consider marriage really strongly, then Paul says it's a great thing to move over here and to get married. And that's okay. Just consider the cost. Consider the new complexity that your life's going to take on. Because this is good, but it is more complex than this life over here. Finally, let's keep reading. Paul says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There's a third theme here that Paul wants to talk about in 1 Corinthians 7. It's this, it's anxiousness. Paul wants us to live without worry. Now, let me mention this. Some of you might, um, some of you might be uh, people who experience uh, clinical anxiety or depression or things like that. You've got some mental health things going on. And if you are, welcome to First Orlando. There's a lot of us here who experience that. You're completely welcome here. Um, we're going to find a place for you here. And I hope you feel like you're part of our community. Um, you're not excluded for any of that. And Paul, what I want to say here is Paul's not uh, specifically speaking to clinical anxiety or these kinds of things here. He's not talking psychologically here about that. What he's speaking about here is just general worry, just general concern for the complexity of things, um, just the general anxiety that happens as you're trying to navigate life. And Paul says, hey, First Corinthians church, I want you to be as much as you can free from anxiety. 
Keep in mind that when Paul's writing his letter to the Philippians, in chapter four, he says this, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request before God. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul talks a lot about this kind of anxiety. And he wants his churches that he ministers to, to be the kind of churches free from anxiety and living in peace. Now, why is this? Well, I think there's probably two reasons. The first one is this. Paul wants the individual believers to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. That because Jesus lived and died and rose again on the third day and now ascended into be the right hand of the Father in heaven, that you can have a relationship with the God of the universe by believing in Jesus, by receiving him into your life, confessing your sins, repenting and turning and following Jesus. And that when all of that happens, that when you decide to follow God, that one of the things God does among many things is that he brings into your life a Holy Spirit of peace. Because when you invite the God of the universe to dwell within you, he brings his full resources inside that you can live a peaceful life from the inside out. Think about this. When we're at Christmas and we sing Handel's Messiah, at some point we sing uh, about Jesus. He's wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Well, when you follow Jesus, you invite the God of peace to live in your life. Um, I've mentioned kids a couple times. Some of you have been around kids, you've babysat, you've seen small babies, and there can be this scenario where babies are crying and they seem inconsolable. And what counselors and you know, baby therapists and people will tell you if they've gone through this before is they say, listen, if the parent is calm, the kid will be calm. Uh, calm parent, calm baby, right? That kind of principle right there. And so if you'll just kind of be calm and you'll bring the baby close and the baby can tell your heartbeat is kind of calm, the baby will calm down. Well, here's what I think Paul is saying here. He wants us to be people of peace. He wants the God of peace to be our spiritual parent so that when he draws us near, the peace of his heart begins to put peace in our heart. It's a calm parent, it's a calm child. And he wants us to live free of anxiety in that way. But there's a second thing that he's saying here. He wants not just individually, but collectively for the church to be a people of peace. There's a, 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 a a psychiatrist counselor uh, who started off as a rabbi named Edwin Freeman. And he wrote a book um, called Generation to Generation. And in this uh, book, which was pretty um, impactful in the eight, late 80s and early 90s, one of the things he argues for is that um, uh, people groups, congregations, uh, Christian congregations, Jewish congregations, any of these people just, and we're not talking spiritually, we're just talking very practically here that these congregations can um, adopt uh, a non-anxious presence. Meaning when you're around that group, you can just say that group is marked by just being a very peaceful group. You might be having a bad day. You might be having a, a bad week. You might just feel really tumbly and rough in your life. But when you go get around this one particular group of people, they just have this non-anxious presence about them. And it's almost it's almost infectious. You think that by osmosis, just by being around this group, that somehow that, that non-anxiousness will hit your life. The peace that's in them will somehow be around you. And he notices that this happens in families, this happens in groups, this happens in communities, happens in churches. Well, um, he's just analyzing this from a psychological perspective, but you know, I think Paul knows something deeper here about a theological truth. 
If the God of peace of the universe comes into the heart of every individual believer in a community, then eventually that community will begin to embody a non-anxious presence. They will be free from anxiety. They will be the calmest group in town. And as we all know, everybody drifts towards peace. And let me, let me illustrate this just a little bit. Um, there's a, a man who just passed away named Tim Keller, who was um, a pastor in New York uh, and a very famous author. He wrote a book called The Reason for God, which in 2008 just kind of set the world ablaze um, as an apologetic for a postmodern generation. And he was a, a very successful, very effective pastor and church planter in Manhattan. He and his wife decided to move to Manhattan in 1989 and plant a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a traditional Presbyterian church in the heart of Wall Street, in the heart of yuppie, slicked back hair culture, fast-paced paganism. And they thought, this is going to be a good idea. We're going to plant a really traditional Presbyterian church in the middle of Manhattan. And there hadn't been a church plant in Manhattan in any number of decades when they decided to go there. And that was the particular model they decided. And everybody told him, this is going to be crazy. No one's going to come to your church. It's going to be a huge flop. Tim Keller was a professor before he planted this church. He's kind of nerdy and academic and, you know, wore a suit every day. And so, you know, in the middle of Manhattan, in the middle of yuppie culture, he plants this traditional conservative church and it takes off. And they start reaching people and the church is growing and thriving and healthy. And it really has this kind of an underground buzz about it right up until 2001. And in 2001 on 9-11, when New York was shaken by the terrorist attacks there, groups of people, especially on the island of Manhattan, said, we feel shaken in our world. Our whole world is topsy-turvy. And they all decided, or many of them decided, to go attend this little church that they'd heard about called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And Keller says he had, um, on that day, on the Sunday afterwards, he had um, his normal slate of services, but people lined up around the block to get in. And there were so many people who were just standing in line, they had to add extra services, just impromptu throughout the day. And people came back the next Sunday and they came back the next Sunday and Redeemer just experienced this explosive season of growth because those people not only came back, but they stuck around and they joined membership and they became Christians and they got baptized and they got integrated into the community life there. And Redeemer exploded in growth. They had to plant a second campus and a third campus and a fourth campus and a fifth campus. And the campuses grew so successful, they eventually spun them all off into their own churches and has started planting a network of churches in cities like that over and over again. Well, what happened there? How do you explain the growth? Well, here's what happened. Redeemer Church became a community defined by being a non-anxious presence. The people, when everything was falling apart, when the whole world was going to hell, they were people who embodied heaven. They were people who lived without anxiety. And so everybody around them who were going through trauma and transition, they were looking at it and saying, I don't know what's going on there, but I want to go be where that peace is because maybe some of that peace will spread to me. And it did as people came to believe in Jesus and got integrated into the life of the community. And so here's the question I want to pose for us here today. Single, married, widowed, divorced, wherever you are, what would it take for us at First Baptist Orlando to be the kind of place, the kind of community that lives without worry, that becomes a non-anxious presence 
at the heart of our community, this community we love called Orlando? What's it going to take for us? And I want to give you one challenge, one key application here to think about today, and it's this. I think in order to be the kind of people who live at peace individually and live at peace as a, as a community of God, we're, Christian community like that is going to require us to make room in our lives. It's going to require us to make room for God, to become saved, to follow Jesus, and it's going to require us to make room physically and practically in our communities, in our home groups, in our on-campus groups, and everywhere we are. And let me just give you just a, a quick visual illustration of this. Um, a few years ago, um, our now student pastor, uh, who Danny talked about, uh, or maybe was here last week and hosted, uh, named David Branch, uh, he was on our college ministry staff. I was the college pastor at the time. Uh, and he and a guy named John Marshall, who's also on our student ministry staff, and a guy named Jake Logan, who's one of our key life group leaders, they started a Bible study at the University of Central Florida. Do we have any Knights in the room, University of Central Florida? Uh, go Knights? Okay, there we go, good. And they didn't have anywhere to meet. It was hard. It was difficult to meet on campus. And so uh, we found this grad student, this PhD student. And we said, hey, you know, we want to start this Bible study. And he was like, yeah, you can meet in our, my apartment. He had a bachelor pad. It was like 600 square feet, maybe 700 square feet max. We're talking a living room with an adjoining kitchen, a little study nook, a restroom, and a bedroom. And that was it. Okay. And he had this giant couch in his living room. And so we were like, okay, we'll just go meet um, Let's go meet at your house. We, you know, we were, we were thankful to have anything. And so we get on, we get into his apartment. We have our first Bible study there. There's six people who show up and we're like, man, this is awesome. And at the very end, we tell them, hey, be sure to invite your friends because, man, we want to reach UCF students. We love UCF students. We're for UCF students. And so the next week, a few more people showed up. People brought friends. And the next week, a few more people showed up. And the next week, a few more people showed up. And I remember about halfway through the semester, that little 600 square foot apartment had 20 people in it, Okay. Uh, the Bible study had grown to 20 people. And this one particular night, we met on one Monday nights, uh, the TV wall is right here and the couch is right here, this giant couch. And there's people who are spilling over, sitting on the ground into the little office area over there. And so I'm just kind of standing here like this with my back against the wall, talking to everybody. And the door is right over here. And I'm just going, man, it's great. We've got this crowd. You know, people are hearing about our Bible study. They want to come to be in community with us and study the word, whatever. And knock, knock, knock the door. And we are like, ha, ha, ha. So we open the door and like six more college students come in. It's like a clown car that just opens up and they're just, they're just all piling in. And so everyone's like, oh, great. Yeah, there's some room on the floor over here, whatever. And so I'm going, I'm like, man, it's incredible. There's 26 people here. Ding dong. And we're like, okay. And we open and like six or seven more people come in. And we're like, hey, this is all really great. And, you know, I'm talking some more door ding dong, like people come in, some people knock, some people ring the doorbell, you know, no judgment, right? Um, so they come in and it's getting to that point where we're going, okay, this is not safe. I, I hope no one knows the fire marshal, like no one posts this on social media. This is really bad. There's too many people. I mean, there's probably 30 or plus people in our room right now. And we're there and then ding dong, right? And there's this last person who comes in and she walks in and she just kind of stands there because it's all crowded now. And in this moment, there's this young college student on the couch and she sees everybody nervous because there's no other place to sit. And she says, hey, you can sit next to me. And she scoots over on the couch and she makes room. She goes, and that girl's like, thank you. And so she navigates and she sits down on the couch and we all in the room kind of breathe the sigh of relief. And for whatever reason, we just started talking about it. We said, this is the visual of Christian community. You make room on the couch. First Orlando, 
Where in your life do you need to make room on the couch? Where do you need to make room? Maybe you're in a home life group and you've got neighbors and coworkers and some of them are interested in following Jesus and you need to go to your life group this week and say, guys, what do we need to do to make room on the couch in our life group? Maybe some of you lead life groups that meet on campus here and you've got a classroom, you've got space. Maybe this week you need to go and have a conversation and say, what do we need to do to make room in our group for people to come meet with us on campus? Maybe, maybe you're someone who's here today and you don't have community. Maybe you're single, married, widowed, divorced, and you don't have community. And maybe your next best step is to find out where you can add community to your life. So you can move from isolation into community way up here. If that's you, can I encourage you with two things? Number one, it's really easy around here to do that. We try to help you out. We have a thing called Connect. It's a three-week uh, experience where you can get connected to us and get connected to serving and get connected to groups and get connected to our mission to reach First Orlando. And it's so easy. You can text Connect to 40777. We'd love to get you connected. The next one is June 11th. You, not this week, not next week, but the week after that, you can get in the class. It's a really great experience for you there. Or maybe you're not ready to do that, but you just have some questions about following Jesus and getting connected. We've got um, some connection areas on either side. Welcome A and B. Someone's there right now after the service. They would love to meet with you if you have questions or you need prayer. Or maybe today you want to follow Jesus for the first time. They'd love to help you out. However you need to make room in your lives, may I encourage you from God's word, make room that you may live lives free from worry, that you may live the abundant life that Paul wants for you in this life we all experience, whether you're single or married or widowed or divorced, however you are, you can have the best life God wants for you. And so I wanna pray for us right now uh, before we close. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you help our friends to live in the kind of community that you want for us? That if people are lonely here, God, that you would give them family. If they're single and lonely, give them family. If they're widowed and lonely, give them family. If they're engaged and lonely, give them family. If they're married and lonely, give them family. Lord, we need the kind of family that is a non-anxious presence in our community. Help us to take steps towards that today. And Jesus, would you do all of this for your glory and for our good and for the good of this city, Orlando, that we love. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.